Wow. I'm glad I came to church today. How about you? If you've come to worship, have you come to worship? You've had 35 minutes. How's it going for you? I want to do a public service announcement for you this morning. You have four and a half months till Christmas. Tis the season. Uh, I'm thinking of that because uh, we have some friends of ours from the time that we lived in Odessa uh, that we see on Facebook, and they do a family Christmas in July every year. They found a way to beat the crowds, and uh, I kind of like that, and I like it because it gives us a really good transition into the passage that we need to look at today. So take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 25, and it's going to be a little bit before we get there for you. Um, but we will get there, and as a matter of fact, I told the early service um, that you're about to sit through one of the two longest passages, not longest sermons, but one of the two longest passages of Scripture that I've tackled in a sermon ever. Uh, I did preach through the book of Mark one Easter Sunday since I've been here, but uh, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture today, which means I don't do what I normally do, which is kind of camp out and dig in. Today it'll be a little more uh, kind of surfing across the top of some things, but it'll be sufficient for us to understand the point that Jesus is teaching. Actually, we're going to pick up what I think is his sermon today. Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther of Reformation fame, was out hoeing his garden one day and a friend of his came by. And uh, stopping to talk to him, eventually asked him, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back today? Martin Luther thought for just a moment, and his reply was, I guess I would just keep hoeing my garden. So I wonder if that question drops into your lap, if you knew that Jesus was returning today, what would you do? Now, just that question and just opening this way sets in motion a whole series of thoughts for a variety of people in a service like this. There is that constant drone in our time of those people who read the news headlines and go into incredible depth in their perceptions of when Jesus might return. I happen to believe that so many people in our churches are fascinated with second coming stuff that they become fixated on it and in the process sacrifice daily discipleship. I think maybe we should find a healthy balance. The theological term is eschatology. It means simply the study of last things. In the field of theology, eschatology is rather new on the scene. It is not one of those uh, series of teachings and doctrines that people have been all that concerned about uh, for all of church history. And my concern for us, and one of the things that I know anytime I come to preach a sermon like this one, is that there will be those people who will have already decided all of the intricacies of what Jesus is going to do and when he's going to come and all of that, that I'm in danger of not saying the right thing in the right way at the right time in the right level of detail for them, and they'll be thoroughly disappointed. 
Part of that's because many Christian people have taken to following, here we carefully now, have taken to following the big voices who make the big bucks in church circles. And they make big bucks off of telling Christians stuff they ought to know about the second coming of Christ. I had a seminary professor who actually was a church history professor who said to us in class, guys, when it comes to rooting out heresy in the church, follow the money. Let's see what Jesus has to say about the second coming because I think that if we will content ourselves with what Jesus says, uh, we'll be in much healthier balance as it relates to this topic. And if you happen to be one of those who follows the big dude from San Antonio or Hal Lindsey or some of those guys, by the way, I should just say that uh, some of these guys who are the proponents of all the detail of second coming kind of eschatological studies they should be really glad that we don't operate from an Old Testament approach to prophecy. Because if we operated from the Old Testament approach of prophecy, the first time one of their prophecies, it's going to happen this way, doesn't happen this way, then they would be killed as a false prophet. Follow the money. Follow the money. So let's see what Jesus has to say. And in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, we find what some scholars call the eschatological discourse. It's where Jesus comes towards the end of his ministry and he pulls his disciples aside and he teaches them some things about the second coming. It's an interesting thing because they're not even totally aware of all that's happening with the first coming of Jesus. And yet he finds it important for them to be able to hang on to some really clear teaching kind of stuff. And so he does this for them. I love what a guy named Snodgrass has to say. Hear very carefully what he says. The purpose, this is in Matthew 24 and 25, the purpose of this teaching is to not give a detailed sequence of events. I, I could probably just stop there and have said enough to call some people to go, wow, that's different. The purpose is not to give a detailed sequence of events, but to provide instruction in view of the destruction coming on Jerusalem. He ties it directly into their times. And in view of God's ultimate victory, and in view of the distractions that keep people from living as they should. What a great statement. When it comes to studying the second coming of Christ... There is a focal point for us. It is not so much the deeper meaning and the detail that Jesus intends us to get. It is rather, well, let's just see what it is. What do you say? Because as we come to this, we pick up this discussion. I'm going to read a little bit here that's not even on the screen, okay? Because I didn't put it there because I wanted you to hear me as I'm reading it, to hear from Jesus' own lips as he goes into this. It's as if Jesus preaches his sermon in about two or three verses, and then he comes on the tail end of that, and he stacks parable upon parable upon parable upon parable. That's four, right? Did I say that? Four parables in a row that take that little two-verse sermon that he preached and elaborates on it. And then he closes it off with the final shot that nails home for us what we need to get when it comes time to talk about the second coming of Christ. And there are all kinds of distractions for us out there 
Let's hear what Jesus has to say. So I'm going to begin reading in chapter 24, verse 1. This is not on the slide yet, so just listen, if you will. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all of these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be one left on top of another. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus, with that, introduces for them this whole discussion that we call the eschatological discourse. And I jump over to verses 36 through 42. Here is Jesus' short sermon on what we need to know about the second coming. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Now, time out, pause, everybody look up. If you... Here, some brother chicken fried knucklehead who says, we have figured out when Jesus is coming back. Whether he intends to be theologically accurate or not, you should be. Don't believe those kind of statements. As a matter of fact, if you do a little bit of study in church history, you will find that history is marked left and right with people and groups who have said, we figured it out when Jesus is coming back. And he didn't. And they were wrong. And yet some of them continue to try to say, this is it. Here's a good point of reference. If Jesus himself didn't know the time, don't believe Brother Knucklehead that he knows the time. So back to it. Here's the sermon again. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, here's the sermon. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. I find it intriguing that so many Christians fixate on reading the tea leaves, if you will, about the second coming of Christ. And Jesus himself says, just be ready. If you need to leave early, there's the sermon for you. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. It's important enough that Jesus now stacks these parables one on top of another, each of them emphasizing a different point. So in the time that I have today, if I count it right, about 16 minutes, we're going to cover four parables. So listen quickly. Chapter 24, here's the first one. Chapter 24, verses 43 And 44, the first parable that Jesus tells to illustrate the sermon that he just preached says this, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be uh, be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And so here's the truth that you get. The end will come unexpectedly. That's the point that Jesus emphasizes there. I've told you some of the Road Trammel family mottos, I know. 
Uh, I've told you those after you asked me to be your pastor because you might not have asked me to be your pastor if I'd have done them before. One of those, you squirt me with your water gun. How does that finish? I will run over you with my truck. We don't play fair. Okay, now, one of our young children shot me with a water gun yesterday. I was this close. Family mottos. Here's another road trammel family motto because sometimes we recognize that somebody is going to take us up on the challenge and so they, in fact, will shoot you with a water gun. And so we've come up with this one, okay? Uh, we will get revenge and you need to expect it when you least expect it. You understand that? Let me, let me give you an example of that because I think it hits exactly what Jesus is saying here. Right after Teresa and I got married, that was a while back now, but I remember this very well. I walk with a limp still because of this. Um, Teresa decided that it would be really cool to play some kind of practical joke on me. I don't remember what it was because ultimately what she did didn't matter. It was the way I was going to get her back that mattered. I remember that very well because she just said, I do too. Um, she didn't even know what I'm talking about and she knows what I'm talking about. So I decided that I would get her back, but I told her I'm going to get you, but you, when you least expect it, that's when you better expect it. So she didn't know that I was doing this, but I took water and I put it in a pitcher and I put it in the refrigerator for several days. And at the most appropriate moment, I took it out while she was in the shower. I snuck into the bathroom and I dumped that cold water over the top onto her hilarious that was on my side of the shower curtain. Imagine her surprise when that water came over the top. Imagine my surprise when she came over the top of the... (laughs) Do you get the unexpected element of that? Don't miss this. Jesus, in talking about this second coming stuff begins by saying with this parable, you're just not going to expect it. We have a lot of people in our day who read the tea leaves and read the newspapers of the Middle East and say, ah, see, it's got to be soon. I'm probably alone in the field on this, but I really don't think it's going to be soon because too many people think it's going to be soon. Ultimately, it doesn't matter to me if it's soon or not as long as I get the point of what Jesus is saying. And the first thing that he says is the end will come unexpectedly. The picture that he gives of this is that old 70s folk Christian song, I wish we'd all been ready. Parable number two, verses 45 through 51. I haven't said yet, I'll say it now, that each of these parables gets a little bit longer than the one before it. Jesus is building his point. And so the second parable, beginning in verse 45, going through verse 51, Jesus builds by saying, Who then is the faithful and the wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Here's the picture here that in in first century Greco-Roman society, including those in Judea, these people would have, these wealthy people would have owned slaves. And it was normal for them to take a slave and put him over his household, especially if he happened to be a guy who traveled some and that kind of thing. And that's the picture we have. 
Back to verse 45. Who then is this faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And now the opposite side. For those of you coming on Wednesday nights, this is a typical monarchic structure. Three characters, three points. Here's the third one. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And while our curiosities might push us to recognize and understand what this cutting in pieces and all that stuff, the point that Jesus is pushing here is that the end will come. We've already said unexpectedly, but now he says the end will come sooner than some expect. I learned this truth uh, when I worked in the oil fields of West Texas. Now, Teresa and I are going out to Odessa starting tomorrow, and uh, we'll be out there for a few days with her family. Um, if you need me, you can get a hold of me through the office, but we're going to be out of town for a while. And when I was growing up and working in the West Texas oil fields, I learned something about human nature. I suspect it's true in the East Texas oil fields as well. And that is that for many people, their whole work ethic is tied to the proximity of the boss. When the boss is around, they're going to work hard. And when the boss is not around, they're not going to work so hard. The company that I worked for was based out of Shreveport, Louisiana. And there would be those times that the bosses in Louisiana would contact the store and say, hey, we're coming out, uh, we'll be there on such and such a date and give us a little bit of leeway. Well, in the time from the time we got the message to the time they showed up was clean the shop, make sure all the inventory is the way it's supposed to be, sparkle, you know, shine the toilets, all of that kind of stuff. Now, that's not how those people live most of the time. But they knew the boss was coming, and so they're going to get out there. They're going to make it look good when the boss shows up. But what was really fun for me as a kid right out of high school watching these adult people operate was when those bosses would show up without announcing that they were coming. You ever seen that kind of thing in your place of business? That's the picture here. The end will come sooner than some expect. And it's at this point that I want to introduce into this the primary statement from my side of this message. You've heard it from me before. If you let me stay, you'll hear it from me many times. God has strategically placed you into a circle of people who desperately need him. Let me say that again because I want to say it a couple of different ways to make sure we get it. This is... Part and parcel the Christian life, or at least one major aspect of it. God has strategically, I would even say divinely, put you into a circle of people who desperately need life. They need Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may be sitting there going, you know, not all of my friends... He hadn't done that with me. All of my friends are Christians. Then you have... Well, I started to say something that was a pretty strong statement. If you don't have any lost people in your circle, you have polluted God's intent for you. 
I know that that's not what we expect to hear. We like to build our little walls. We go with what Aaron was talking about, and we like that idea that we find in the book of Acts and those summary statements, and we're all just living together, doing the church thing, and it's all, it's all, it's all glory. The problem with that is that Jesus never allows us that as the ultimate end of the Christian life. We are salt, and we are light, and we are pushed out into a very dark world with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's not optional for us. That's standard marching orders. So God has strategically placed you into a circle of people who desperately need life. In other words, each of us is this this servant who's been left in charge. You've been given the say over that little piece of the world. And at some point, Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, which may be sooner than you think, how's it going to go for those people in your circle? The deal for us is we kind of buy into this idea. Well, we got tomorrow. You know, I'm busy. Yeah, I know my friend needs the Lord, but you know, not today. I'm, I'm busy today. He might show up quicker than you think. You know, some of the people in your circle may not survive till he comes. You know, one of the hardest things for me to get over from my years of drug use and the rebellion that I lived for so long is the faces of those friends of mine, the ones that I partied with and shared bad living with who didn't make it long enough to come to know Christ. Some of my friends in high school that I partied with a lot died in car wrecks and other things within just a handful of months after we got out of high school. You don't have any guarantee that the people in your circle will live long enough for you to share Christ with them tomorrow. Parable number three. It's a little bit longer. Now we're in chapter 25, 13 verses worth of this parable. The last point of the, or the parable, and the last point of that parable was that the end will come sooner than some expect. The point of this one is the end will come later than some expect. Verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 25, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. The picture here is of that first century Jewish society and the way they did weddings often, which would take a week to do. And we've taken a week and we've stretched it into months and months of wedding preparation and all that. But theirs was a feast. And it involved all kinds of people, including the whole town sometimes. Uh, And the picture of that would be that the bride would live at her parents' home and she would wait and the groom would be at his home or his parents' home and he would wait. And for somewhere during this week of festivities, the groom, somewhere in the middle of that, whenever it seemed right to him, would say, I'm tired of waiting on that woman. I'm going to go get her. And so he would go down the street and take all of his friends with him and he would go to this home of the bride and her parents And she would have her bridesmaids there. That's the ten virgins here. And he would go in and he would take her. They would parade through the streets celebrating this union. So Jesus takes a very real picture, as he does with all of these parables. 
And he says, we'll be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will be not enough for us and for you, every man for himself. That's the Rotrammel translation for the day. Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Here's the slant, by the way, in this parable. This is where Jesus throws them a curveball, because no bridegroom in his right mind would say, no, you can't be part of this feast. But yet he says in verse 12, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The end will come later than some expect. That seems to be the truth of this. But the slant that Jesus gives is the one that rocks our boats. Because the truth that he emphasizes there is when the end comes, there'll be no second chances. That needs to impact us. Because that, oh, I'll get to it later for the people in your circle who need to know Christ. The I get to it later thing might very well doom them to hope for a second chance that will never come. I would love to expand on this some because in our day there is this move towards soft peddling judgment after we die. Annihilationism, love wins, sounds good in a culture that is increasingly callous to responsibility and to judgment but it doesn't fit scripture, or so it seems. So when the end does come, it will be too late for us to undo the damage of neglect, which pushes us to the fourth and the final one that we look at today, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. Just so you know, a talent is roughly 6,000 denarii. A denarius was one day's wages at minimum wage. So we're talking a talent is roughly 20 years worth of earnings at minimum wage. This is an incredible amount of money. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Let me say here, this is the slant, or it soon will be the slant for us, because Jesus is not going to accept this last guy's work as acceptable. But this last guy represents the way it was done in first century Jewish life. 
If somebody was going to give you something and entrust you to hold it for them while they were gone, the whole idea was that it would be secure and that they would be there when they got back. And so digging a hole and putting it in it was the way to do it, not to risk it by investments. So the slant comes, verse 18, but he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And here's the slant. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful Servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. And then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So the talents, or so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the point is, when the end approaches, what are you going to be doing? The end will come unexpectedly. It may be sooner or later than you expect. But when it comes, and by the way, It's coming. When it comes, what will you be doing? How should we approach this whole second coming thing? There would be those in our world today who would fixate on this. And they'll have hypothesis after hypothesis after theory, after theory, with supporting evidence in their mind that nails it down. I find it interesting that Jesus did not bother with that. What he did bother with was this. I'm coming back. And your job is to go with me and take as many people with you as you can. So how are you doing with that? If he came back before we finished this sermon, who in your circle would be left? Let's pray. And so, Lord, we find ourselves again with that marching order from heaven itself to share the good news of life only through Jesus Christ with a world that is dying left and right. For those times where we have gotten sidetracked with the 
minutiae of this world. We ask for forgiveness. For those times that we have replaced a compassion for people with our own little pet theologies and methods of study, we ask for forgiveness. Where we have been diverted in our focus on growing to be like Jesus in favor of the minutiae of his return, we ask for forgiveness. Where we have been content to sit back and play our games and our actions literally scream out to a lost world, you can all just die and go straight to hell. We ask for forgiveness. We ask you now to impress upon each of us the incredible responsibility and privilege that we have to take the good news of Jesus Christ to people who desperately need it. Give us courage. Give us wisdom. Give us everything we need to be about that every day of our lives. So we ask now that your spirit would be at work in these people, your people, to do these things as is fitting to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.